Christ who died for our sins and rose up again. I'm, I'm thankful continuously for the word that he gives us, and I'm excited to bring John, the third chapter, to you, the first part. Um, in this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, and I'm glad that we get to really dissect parts of this and understand uh, this conversation that's going on and why it's important for us to understand the elements of this conversation. But before I start preaching, I want to pray real quick. Father God, thank you for yet another day. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who was born to save our lives. Thank you for this opportunity where we get to learn more about you, about what you have to say. Father God, remove me, Gregory Holtz, and fill me with your Holy Spirit. Let the word be true and not of my own will. Uh, keep a watch over my mouth and let me be cognizant of the time and open the hearts of your people so we can receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's talk about Nicodemus real quick before we head, head into the meat and potatoes of this conversation. So Nicodemus was a Pharisee, right? So the Pharisee uh, is a Hebrew word which means to separate or the ones who are separate, right? So this is talking about a group of people that believe that they were the guardians of the law. So they, they kept the law. Not only that, they added to it. They added their own traditions and their own laws to the Mosaic law, right? They were also a group that were middle class. They were generally uh, businessmen or people who were not necessarily like priests or whatnot. They were not a part of the Levitical line, but they studied the word. It'd be like if you were a lawyer studying the Bible. You know the concepts of the Bible, but you are not an ordained minister, right? And so... Another important part is that the Pharisees were something called a supernaturalist. So they believed in miracles. They believed in the signs. And they were looking for this because they expected the prophesied resurrection of the saints and the institution of a Mosaic kingdom, which we can see in Daniel 12, 2, and Isaiah 11, 1 through 6. And so as well, while they're waiting for that kingdom to come, they express their religion externally, right? So that's like wearing priestly robes and praying for real long times and parading themselves. They want to be seen as religious, right? That's how you know, like, oh, he's a religious person. He's going to heaven because I can, I can visually tell it. So that's what the Pharisees were. So Nicodemus was not only a Pharisee, but the Bible says that he was a part of the rulers of the Jews. That phrase points to something called the Sanhedrin, which... Eric talked about a while ago. Now, this group of people was essentially like the Jewish Supreme Court. They were a group of like members, like they had a president, they had chief priests, elders, and scribes. There was about 71 of them. You were either gotten to this group by inheritance or you, you were politically voted in. And they executed like civil law and criminal jurisdiction. So Nicodemus was part of both of those groups and at the top. This was a man of the upper echelon. He was top class. He was, would you say, like valedictorian of his class. He, he had a lot going for him. He was renowned. But we see that he's going to meet Jesus. He's a teacher who knows all these things, and yet he's going in the middle of the night to go talk to Jesus. And so why could that be? Why would he choose to go middle of the night? Probably because of what we learned last week about Jesus pushing people out of the temple. So Jesus' popularity with the Pharisees and the other groups weren't necessarily the best, right? But you can't necessarily be the top of your class 
and going to the person that has pushed you out. So he goes by night, right? And so they engage in this conversation. We see that in John 3, 2, it says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so we have to like really look at what Nicodemus is saying. He's saying we. He's coming as a representative for the Pharisees. He's saying that my group, we've seen what you're doing, and not all of us necessarily agree, but there's a part of us that says that there's, a, there's something special. There's something different about this teacher. He's doing works that we can't do. So let's, let's find out more about him. We have to go, but we can't rustle too much. We can't do it in public, so let's go talk to him quietly. We understand that you're a teacher, and you must have God with you. And so we see that Nicodemus, at the start of this, is impressed by Jesus. But he's not particularly open to the full truth. And we understand this by looking further into the conversation. that He, he gets it that God is with him. But he wants to know more about who Jesus is. Who, what authority do you have to be doing all this? We, we see you performing miracles, but we want to know more about and so we see that uh, Jesus is not just a teacher to Nicodemus, but Nicodemus wants to start really assessing who Jesus is. He wants to understand more about him. But what I like about how Jesus functions as I more and more dissect the Bible is that Jesus knows the hearts of men. And so, a and so instead of skipping all the, hey, how are you? You're a good teacher. No, 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 no. Oh, you're Nicodemus. He goes right to the issue. He knows why Nicodemus is there. And so we see it says, truly, truly. This, this is an important statement that I think that sometimes we gloss over. Whenever you say truly, which is also be verily, most assuredly, uh, so be it, it, it's reflective of the Greek word amen. And so normally we say amen at the end of our statement. Amen? Yeah, we're, we're, we're affirming truth. We say it at the end. But the thing is, when you lead off with amen, or whenever you lead off with truly, it's implying two things. One, that it's true. And the second is that the person who's making that statement has firsthand knowledge and authority over the statement that's false. And so through the Gospels, we see that Jesus uses a single amen over 50 times to introduce truth. He's saying that this is a true statement. Barely I tell to you. Truly I tell to you. It's important. I'm telling you that it's true. So if one amen is affirming truth, then two amens is saying that this is an important piece of information. Don't skip over it. This is more important than you might think. Truly, truly I tell to you. Don't gloss over it. Listen to me have something important that you can't that you can't neglect this is not just normal conversation let it stick in your mind your body and your spirit and so the double amen the double truly is that it is of the utmost importance it is an essential statement but really what Jesus is saying is very simple he's telling that you must be born Again, if you want to see the kingdom of God, 
the only way that you can see this kingdom is to be born again. Now, we have to understand the complexities of what Jesus just told Nicodemus. Like I said before, Nicodemus was the top of his class. He understood the law. He, he was the top of the law. And now he's coming to Jesus to see why he's doing all these miracles and what Jesus has to say. And Jesus is telling him, no, you're wrong. What you studied, you've misinterpreted. This is the truth. And so Jesus is essentially shattering the structure that Nicodemus has been founded on. And see, we, we, let's dissect further about what Nicodemus' view is according to their interpretation of the Old Testament. See, the kingdom of God is not found, that statement, is not found in the Old Testament, but it's reflected in some of the scriptures. And see, Nicodemus is not foreign to the concept of a millennial kingdom at the end of the age. That's what they were looking for. They were anticipating that kingdom to come. And so he's hearing this statement like, oh, you must be talking about this, but there's a problem here. The problem is that Nicodemus and the Jews believed that this was going to be a physical kingdom. And they believed that keeping the religious externals, the, the praying loudly and the wearing the fancy clothes and walking through the marketplace, that that was their rebirth. Not only that, they believed that their lineage secured their place in the kingdom of God. They believed that because I was born a Jew, I've done it. I did it. That's it. I don't have to do anything else. Everything else is just showing you that I'm a Jew, and I'm in the kingdom of God, and if you're a Gentile, you're lost. Sorry. That's just the way it is. And see, Jesus is telling you, no, 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 no. You're, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. That's not, that's not how you do it, man. You must be born again. And so, if we look at the statement born again, the word above, or again, is actually the Greek for above. So, really the statement is you must be born from above. Not necessarily again, but from above. And so Jesus is teaching that new birth or regeneration can only come from above. If we look at 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. And here's the point that Jesus is trying to make, that you need to have the intervention of the Holy Spirit. This is God's work of salvation. If you want to see the kingdom of God, you need God's work of salvation. It's not the externals that get you into heaven. Nicodemus, it's not your authority. Nicodemus, it's not your power. It's not your money. It's not all the training that you've had. None of it matters. That doesn't get you into heaven. The only thing and I can say only with authority because that's what the Bible says. The only thing that allows you to see the kingdom of God is to be born again. It's not an option. It's the only way. It's either in or out. You have to follow this route. And so we look at Titus 3, 3 through 7, where it says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, 
led astray slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and in envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of who? Our God, our Savior appeared. He saved us, not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, who he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that we might be justified by his grace, why we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is groundbreaking. And so, of course, Nicodemus wasn't fully grasping it, but he's a teacher of the law. He's a studious person, so he's getting information, but he's not fully comprehending it. I'm only assuming this experience would be like if my daughter came home from school and said that we're learning Common Core math. I don't know Common Core math but I understand the elements of math, but I need you to teach me something new. And so I'm questioning it. And so we see that Nicodemus understood Jesus' words literally, as in you have to be repeated. Your birth had to be repeated and not necessarily above. And so Nicodemus is looking at this more of like, oh, okay, this is like a moral reform. Instead of saying, I'm sorry once, I'll say I'm sorry twice, and that gets me right in the kingdom of heaven. I did it. That's, that's what you're talking about, Jesus, right? That's it. We just have to change our behavior. That's, that's what we have to do. You, you just have to teach an old dog new tricks, right? But that's not what Jesus is talking about. But I have to give honor to Nicodemus because he wanted to know the truth. And so he kept asking questions. And he humbled himself to find it, regardless of his privilege and social status. James 4 and 6 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, this entire conversation, regardless of what Nicodemus' status and power was, it's all about Jesus. It's all about what Jesus has to say, what his message was, who he is. It's not even about Nicodemus. It's about Jesus. Jesus, what do you have to say? What is the truth that you're bringing to me? And see, I like this because Nicodemus is searching for objective truth. It's true regardless of how you feel. And see, we see both back in the day and today that people want a form of truth, but won't humble themselves before Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, John 14 6. They want a truth that placates to their sin. They want a truth that doesn't rustle their feathers. They want to do what they want to do, but they don't want the actual truth that corrects. They want to do what pleases their flesh. And see, we see in John 3 and 5 that Jesus answers him and says, truly, truly, we see that statement again, I say to you. So once again, he's saying, listen to me. I'm not lying to you. Unless one is bored of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so Eric kind of touched on this in Core Seminar about the phrase water and spirit. And it did actually take me some time because if you look, um, a lot of concordances, a lot of scripture, and a lot of people who break it down, there's lots of different things that is said about this statement. But I was led to this where 
if you refer back to the Old Testament, which is where this, the basis of this conversation is coming from, Jesus is telling Nicodemus two things. Spirit refers to God's principle of life, right? Even in creation, we can see that in Genesis 2-7. And it also talks about cleansing God's people from their idolatry and disobedience. We can look at Ezekiel 11, 19 through 20, and it says, I, God, will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people. And I will be their God. So that's spirit, right? So let's talk about water. What does the Old Testament say about water? Water is talking about a cleansing element. Just like we use water to wash our dishes to get dirt off of it, or we wash ourselves to get dirt off of it. In the same respect, it's water's referring to getting rid of, it's cleansing. So let's go back to Ezekiel, except this time 36, 25 through 27, where it says, I, God, will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in what my statute and be careful to obey my rules. And so it's not two separate elements. It's not... Your, the, the spirit and then the water. Jesus puts those together. It's water and spirit. And so what is this talking about? It's talking about a spiritual rebirth. See, the water cleanses you and the spirit brings you new life. So you don't have to be physically born. You have to be spiritually born from above. You need a cleansing. You need a rebirth. And it doesn't come from you. It comes from God. And so, let's look at John 3, 6. And, and Jesus says, that which is born of flesh is flesh. So, when we talk about flesh, we're talking about the human nature. Right? We're talking about what we want to do, how we perceive things. We're also talking about the, inact the inaccuracy of flesh. Like, it's not efficient. Flesh is not efficient in a spiritual sense. Because flesh only seeks to gratify itself. Flesh is selfish. Flesh produces things that is only really good for you and puts you up, but sometimes will push people down. Flesh is not what's appeasing to God. He doesn't want that. And we see that Flesh can only reproduce flesh, and this cannot pass muster with God. So you doing things to earn your salvation through yourself is not pleasing to God. If I say, God, I'm going to run uh, three miles today, and that's going to get me to heaven right now. That doesn't work. I'll, oh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to maybe, I don't know, work here, and my works will get me into heaven, right? No, that's, that's not it. Because, see, if we go to Romans 8, 6 through 8, it says, for, the, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life 
and peace. For the mind that is set on flesh is hostile to God. And it does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot. Not may not. Sometimes it cannot. It's infinitive. It's a true statement. There's no way around it. It cannot. But those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If we go to Genesis 1.11, we see the law of reproduction where we see that each, eye, each kind produces after its own kind. So flesh will only reproduce flesh. If my wife goes to her garden and she really wants peppers for the season, she doesn't plant potatoes. Or, or she doesn't plant like pieces of paper and expect strawberries to come out. That doesn't work that way, right? You need peppers to get peppers. That's just logical. So why do we have the tendency to give God's things that are of the flesh when he wants the spiritual? We see other methods of trying to appease God, but that's not what he wants. I don't, he doesn't want that. He already told you what he needs. See, the major point here is that man by himself or herself cannot change themselves to avoid condemnation. That change, that rejuvenation, that rebirth is not born out of your flesh. It's given to you See, only the spirit can produce what is spiritual. And so faith in things besides Jesus Christ will change your lifestyle, but it will not change your spirit. It's an instrumental change that you can enact, that I can enact, that we cannot enact. We need salvation. And salvation is a sovereign work from God that is unachievable by the John 3, 7 and 8 says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And see, Jesus is using elementary topics such as water and spirit, and we'll see here wind. Wind in the Old Testament refers to regeneration. And I, I've had some fun with this little part of the topic where I wanted to understand when. It seems kind of simple, but I, I was studying and I like really thought to myself, like, how, how does wind work? Like, I have an understanding of how wind works, but there's no way that if you asked me to have an academic paper on the functionality of wind, I would be sitting there for hours. And so I asked my daughter, like, Hannah, how does wind work? And she looked at me and was like, so we looked it up. See, wind is caused by uneven heating on the Earth's surface by the sun. Because the, land, because the Earth's surface is made up of different types of land and water, it absorbs the sun's heat at different rates. For an example, uh, uneven heating in the daily wind cycle. So during the day, air from the land is heated up, and so it rises faster over like the water. Warm air over the land expands and rises, and the heavier, cooler air goes down and is replacing the other air, which creates wind, right? And at night, the process is reversed. 
So we have an understanding of how the wind works. But here's the thing about that. Did I need to tell you that explanation if, to understand how wind works? No, you didn't need that. You didn't need the academics of how the wind works. See, we know the wind is there. We understand the functionality of winds because we experience it. We experience the wind, even though you don't fully understand it. While I was writing my sermon yesterday, it was about 6 o'clock, I decided to take a break. I went out through my garage, and I'm standing in God's holiness and his presence in the nature and just absorbing what is there. I, I could feel the wind hit my face. It was kind of cold, and it was going towards this way. I don't know which cardinal direction that is, but it was going this way. I was standing and watching the, the, the grass blow, and I saw the tree in our backyard that was blown over and cracked in half from the power of the wind. I saw the effects of the wind. I could hear the wind hitting my house, hitting the trees, rustling. Without those, I would not know the wind is there. But because it's moving through, I understand that the wind is there. I didn't need to know the academics of it. I just experienced it. Right? I can see the wind, but I know it's there. We don't need to know the completeness of how the wind functions to know that it's there. And like the wind, the Holy Spirit works in the same way. Where the Spirit works, there's undeniable proof. It's just there. You can see it. You can see the results. You can see the change. When the Holy Spirit moves through, you know that there's a change. I don't have to explain the change. I can see it. I can see the change. I can see the Holy Spirit moving. I can understand. It's not you. It's the Holy Spirit who's moved through you that has made that change. And so Jesus is telling Nicodemus that you didn't have to understand everything about new birth to experience it. You don't need to understand the complexities of the Holy Spirit to know that he is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. See, we need to have a constant gratitude that God's gift of mercy and salvation is with us. God's gift of empowerment is with us through the Holy Spirit. And God's direction is with us. I don't have to explain it. I have to fully understand it. I know it's there. I, I feel it. You feel it. We feel it. That there is a cardinal change that has only occurred through the Holy Spirit. And see, Nicodemus is struggling through this conversation. He wants to learn, and obviously I would probably feel the same way of such groundbreaking information back to back to back. And see, how can these things be? John 3, 9. And it's funny because he was dumbstruck at this point, but Jesus asked him not to marvel at the statement. Here he is marveling at the statement. But understandably so, his concepts are getting broken down. And see, like most Jews at the time, they knew the Old Testament scriptures. They understood what they were reading to an extent. And they believed that they already had the inner transformation needed. They already did the work. So why are you telling me I need to do it again? I don't understand. And see, it's interesting because the Pharisees were supernaturalists, but when Jesus brought a supernatural concept to him, he couldn't understand. See, he wanted it in principle. When it came to the actual reality, he had a hard time understanding. He had a hard time understanding the spiritual and the supernatural. And see, if we go to John 3, 10, 
Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. See, Nicodemus couldn't understand that the Spirit was clearly taught in the Old Testament. If you go to Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Joel 2, 28-29. The esteemed teacher of the law, the esteemed student of the Bible should have known that. That's what Jesus is saying. I, we, we, I already told you. These, these are elementary concepts that are already here that you should know, and yet you're not understanding. See, Jesus is pointing to spiritual bankruptcy. There is blindness in the land. They understood it intellectually, but not spiritually. He couldn't get it. He couldn't get the spiritual aspect of what was going on. And so... If you look at John 3, 11 through 12, Jesus is focusing on the idea that the unbelief is caused by ignorance. Truly, truly, I say to you, see it again, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but do you do not receive our testimony. It's kind of the same as we saw in the earlier part of the scripture where Nicodemus is saying we, as in the Pharisee, Jesus is using the same thing, where he's saying we, as in Jesus, John the Baptist, and the Old Testament prophets, we've been telling you about these things, but you don't believe us. Nicodemus's failure to understand Jesus' teaching was not because he wasn't smart. It's because he failed to believe Jesus' witness. He was, he was having a hard time understanding what he was saying. And see, it's interesting because rabbis at that time, the way that they debated was using other rabbis. So if I'm having a conversation with you, well, Eric said this because Mike said this. Their, their experience is based off of other people. It's not firsthand. But do we see the difference? Jesus had firsthand experience. He came from heaven. He came down. He understands these things. It's firsthand. I'm, I'm the primary source. Truly, truly, I tell to you. This is what you have. I'm not, not leaning on other sources. The Son of God came and told us how these things function. From personal experience. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually disturbed. And like many people, Nicodemus lacked spiritual perception. The nation at the time lacked spiritual perception. They relied on their human senses, their human reasoning, to really try to conceptualize the spiritual. But as we learned previously, flesh cannot produce the spiritual things. So therefore, flesh cannot understand the spiritual things. In order for you to understand the spiritual things, you must go to the spiritual source. For man cannot reason on God's levels. You need God to understand, to explain that. You need the Spirit of God to open up your eyes. You can't do it. And so, John 3.12 says that no one disbelieves earthly things, right? We, we understand water. We understand physical birth. We understand wind. And Jesus is using these concepts to try to explain something to Nicodemus. And he's telling Nicodemus, if you don't understand the elementary concepts, how can I explain to you heavenly things? 
where there is no earthly example. I'm trying to tell you, but you're not listening. You're not understanding. So how can I tell you the more complex things? You're a teacher. I expected you to know this, but we're going back to the basics. You can't do calculus without basic math. But you should know that. You've been studying basic math for years. You're a renowned teacher of the law. You're pastor, reverend. You have all these titles, and yet when I'm trying to explain to you, you're not grasping. You should have known this. You were supposed to be preparing the people for me, and yet here we are. It was a light rebuke. Trying to shift Nicodemus' thinking. And so heavenly things are the elements of the kingdom of God, which are beyond our understanding. If we can't get the simple, how can we understand the complex? And see, this whole, this whole breakdown of this conversation, the first part of this conversation, is that it's pointing to an issue. From the beginning, man has had a heart problem. An extensive heart problem. And man has attempted to solve this heart problem with fleshly means. There is a God-sized hole, and they're stuffing things that don't fit in that hole. And we can see that today when people try to do methods and it doesn't work for them. Oh, I've been doing this, but I'm still feeling off. I've been doing X, Y, and Z, but I'm feeling off. It's because you're putting something that doesn't fit. It wasn't meant for your power to go in that hole. It wasn't meant for your bloodline to go in that hole. It didn't meant for your privilege. There's nothing that you can do to fill in that hole. There's nothing that Gregory Holtz can do to fill in that hole. There is a need of a change that is external to bring that new birth. It's impossible for the flesh to do that. You need the spirit. And so this is a problem that only God can solve. And so in order for God to solve it, we must obey not us that brought about a change. The changes in your life were brought about by the Holy Spirit. It wasn't you. And if you take a critical look at yourself, you'll be able to see that those changes, that healing, that bring you out from the dust, all that was not done by you, because if it was done by you, you wouldn't need a Savior. And needed the intervention of the Holy Spirit. Thank you so much for allowing me to preach today and to give God's word and have it sit in your heart so that we may be thankful for all that God has done for us. Thank you.